Well, the Philippian church was by far the healthiest church that Paul addressed in the New Testament. In fact, they really are a testimony and even an example of what a healthy, mature group of believers within a church looks like. Now, this doesn't mean that they weren't without their own problems and difficulties. In fact, we find out beginning this week that there are at least two people within that church that just for whatever reason just couldn't get along. Now, Paul is going to actually name them by name, kind of call them out in this letter. Think about that for a minute if you were causing trouble in a church. And the Apostle Paul of all people mentions you, calls you out in the whole group of the body, and then it is preserved for all of Christendom for the rest of eternity to know your name and who caused the problem. That, that would be difficult. But he's going to get to that, but before he does, right now, he just merely just kind of very gently, very tenderly begins to introduce and let them know that he knows that there's some disagreements and some some disunity going on in the church. Now, Paul has already encouraged the church at Philippians in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. He said, to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, he is giving them the command of God for them to seek and to be unified as one body of Christ, one church to maintain and remain unified. Now, what he is going to do is he is going to let them know how to do that. How is it that we can achieve and maintain unity within a local body, within a local church? Now, if you've ever been a part of a church that was unified, you probably knew it that you were not a part of a unified uh, church because usually chaos reigns supreme in a church that is not for the most part unified uh, together in what it is that they are doing. One of my favorite authors, Sinclair Ferguson, says this, referring to the, the impact that a, that a church of disunity has on, on themselves and others, says this. He says, how can non-Christians be convinced that God reconciles us to God if we are not reconciled to one another? That's a great point, right? He, he, he goes on and he, he continues and he says that the lack of unity always has the effect of turning a Christian fellowship on itself, wasting energy on itself. When we devour ourselves in the way that we have little energy left to be shining light and preserving salt in a needy world. Now, for all of you that were not listening to one bit of what it was that I was just reading, I have a hard time doing that. Somebody says, let me quote, they quote, then I don't pick up until their end. Let me say what he was saying. In essence, what what, what this man is saying, what Sinclair Ferguson is saying, is when a church is in the midst of disunity, when there's no unity among them, it impacts, it, it, unfortunately, it is contrary to the gospel that they preach. We preach a message, the gospel, and the gospel is one giant message of reconciliation between us and God. If we're unwilling to reconcile, then that stands in opposition to the very message that we're preaching. Amen? Right? Are, are you with me? All right, yeah, we're just making sure we understand that. Secondly, what he's ultimately saying is it also impedes the mission of the church because we are to be using all of our energies and resources to get outside of the four walls to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who don't have it. And if there is strife and disunity within the church, the church has a tendency to do nothing but look and be inwardly focused because they're spending all of their times dealing with their own personal problems with one another. We understand that. 
And he says, he says here that what Paul's going to do is he's going to help us to work through that and not become that type of church. Now, the significance here is what I want you to understand is that even though the context here is about unity within a church, there is implications and application that goes far beyond that. It's not just for a church to have unity, but it's in every Christian relationship that we need to try to maintain unity. Our relationship with our spouse, with our family, with extended family, believe it or not, have peace and unity there, as well as godly friends, maybe people that you're working with that are other believers in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does is he begins to lay all of that out here in chapter 2. In fact, chapter 2 is said to be the ultimate teaching, the definitive teaching in all of the New Testament on the subject of unity. One author kind of jokingly said, if you can't be unified after studying Philippians chapter 2, you can't be unified, all right? Now, we know that's not true. We know we just need to submit ourselves to the teaching of God's word. Well, this is a big passage. I realized this last week. My whole idea was to preach the whole pericope. That's the whole section of scripture that deals with this. Uh, Then it got to be Thursday, and I was halfway through verse 2 and realized it ain't going to happen, all right? And so what we're going to do is I want to divide his instruction up into two parts. I think two natural parts here, doing one this week, one next week. This week, we want to look at the first two verses, and we want to look at the motivation for seeking unity. What, what, what motivates us to try to be unified? Listen, I got to tell you, to be unified with other people takes a lot of energy, right? It takes a lot of dying to yourself. So we need the right motivation that's going to propel us to be able to seek unity with other people. Then next week, we're going to look at the model of unity. We're actually going to look, okay, what does it look like to seek to be unified? And we have the perfect model. It's the person of Jesus Christ. But today, we want to look at our motivation. And there's just two things, mainly because we've got to get out of here and go to Crazy Fest, all right, out on the thing. So let's be quick and only have two points and not three, amen? Don't say I never gave you anything. All right, number one, here it is. We are motivated to unity by the grace that we have received, We are motivated for unity by the grace that we have received. Now, what Paul's going to do, not trying to get overly technical, let me lead you through this. In the first verse here, he's going to use four ifs. This is one of those if and statements, like if this is true, then these things need to be able to happen. What he's going to do is he's going to show us four things that every believer in Jesus Christ has received from Christ when they were born again. And then in light of all that we have received, he says, in turn, this is the way we now need to be able to live our life. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, when he uses the word if, He's not suggesting that he is doubtful that we have received these things as believers. Another way to really translate that is since. He's saying, since you have received these four things, the only right way now to live is for you and I. And then he's going to list four things, but those four things are all going to have to do with living in unity with one another. Now, when we usually read a text like this, what do we do? We skip over all the list. Yes? Are you like me? at all, right? Here's a list. Too much. Let's skip over it. Let's go on. We cannot skip over this, okay? This is where the weight of the text is. So let's, let's take the time. Let's kill ourselves to get into the Bible, all right, and list all four things. Okay, what are they? Number one, he says, if or since then that we have received encouragement in Christ. What does that mean? Well, the word encouragement simply means to come alongside of another who is in need of help, specifically somebody who is in dire need, somebody that can't help themselves. 
the most beautiful picture really that we have or story or illustration that we have in the word of God or one of them is really with the story of the good Samaritan. There's a man who is beaten and he's left for dead and he's left in a ditch and he's dying. He can't help himself. He can't get himself out of the situation that he's now in. And what happens, people begin to walk by. His own people, other Jewish people, one after another, even spiritual people, teachers of the law, they're walking by, they leave him for dead. One day, his enemy, a Samaritan, who would have been enemy at birth, shows up, passes by. Instead of passing by, he goes to him, gets in the ditch with him. He picks him up. He takes him out of the situation. He nurses him back to life. When he's better, he takes them to an inn. He pays the innkeeper to take care of him and even tells him, listen, if I leave and come back, if you have to spend any more money for his care, I will make sure that I give it to you. What is it a picture of? Church, what is it a picture of? It's a picture of salvation. You and I were in the ditch. You and I were in the deepest, darkest pit of sin imaginable. No way for you and I to help ourselves to get out of the pit. We could not get out. What does Jesus do? He comes alongside who was our enemy. Why our enemy? Not because of his doing, but because of our own. We rejected him and his lordship becoming an enemy of God. And yet Jesus humbles himself to that point, comes alongside of us, delivers us from sin, delivers us from death, delivers us from the impending wrath of God. And note this, he does it all, every bit of it at his great expense. Now, I don't know if you need encouragement this morning, but there it is right there. That's encouragement in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, everything that I've just explained for you has been given to you by Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing we've received is encouragement in Christ. The second thing we receive is the comfort of love. If there is any comfort of love or since there is comfort of love, you know, there is great comfort in unconditional love. Would you agree? Unconditional love, a love that no matter what you do, no matter what happens, it's always going to be there. It's always secure. There's comfort in that. That's why when my kids were little, one of the things that I would say, every single one of them as they're little, they're, I go through it with them. I, I go, how much does daddy love you? And they go, I don't know. How much? And I in turn just sit there and go, so much. Daddy loves you so much. And so you keep saying this and saying this and saying this over and over and over. Why? Because I'm trying to uh, indoctrinate my child, right? And to let them know how much I love them. And they say, and then I ask them again, how much do I love you? Eventually they get around to saying so much. Daddy loves me so much. There's another saying that we do. And right now we're going back and forth with two of our kids constantly. It's kind of a game we play. I tell them, I said, I love you. In turn, they go, I love you too. And I, inter- they, and I sit there and say, I love you most. And then I drop the mic and I walk off. And I say, there's nothing you could do about that. I love you most. Can't, can't do anything about it. I win, right? And so then now they try to get me. I love you. I love you more. I love you most. And now they try to, oh, darn it, you know, trying to get to that point. Why, why, why do my wife and I say this? Or why do we say this to our kids? Because we want our children to feel the security and the comfort of knowing that their mom and dad love them unconditionally. And that we love them more. 
We love them more than any little boy or any little girl or any little friend or anybody at school or, or, or any teacher or any coach or any Sunday school teacher or any pastor. Look, I'm glad that they may all love my child, but none of them, and I want them to be convinced, none of them will love them like mom and dad love them. No matter what they do, will we be disappointed? Will we be heartbroken? Can we be heartbroken by our children and what they do? Absolutely, but it will never change the depth one iota on their worst day or whether best day. It's unconditional. For every single one of us, we've experienced the epitome of what unconditional love is through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to each and every one of us when he begins to call us for salvation, and he says, I love you. Do you know how much I love you? And we say, no, how much do you love me? And he goes, I love you so much. And he stretches out his arms, and they're nailed to a cross. Jesus, in the same way, when he turns to us and he goes, I I love you, and we say, no, we love you more when we know all that he's done for us. And he says, no, I love you most. I love you most. And we look at him and we understand what he did for us on the cross, and there's no way to trump that. And the Bible tells us very clearly in his word uh, that that we know that he loves us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible teaches us again, no greater love is this than the man who laid down his life for a friend. Every one of us, if you are born again, you've experienced this kind of love and are still experiencing it. Paul says, for all believers are in here, since you have experienced the encouragement and help of Christ, because you've experienced the comfort of his love, And then thirdly, and because you have taken part in what? The participation in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been said or referred to sometimes as the forgotten God. And the reason for that is because we talk a lot about Father God. We talk a lot about God the Son. But oftentimes, and especially if you grew up maybe in a Baptist church, they don't speak a great deal about God the Holy Spirit. But Paul's not that way. The Holy Spirit and the teaching on the Holy Spirit is always present in the teaching of Paul. So when Paul sits there and he speaks of the participation in the Spirit, he's speaking specifically about the fellowship with the Spirit of God that we have at the moment that we are born again. When you're born again, guess what? The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you and dwells in you. And when he dwells in you, he not only lives in you and dwells in you, he also seals you until the day of redemption, which means he not only saves you, but he keeps you saved until the day of glorification. You can't lose it because he won't let you lose it. It's a free gift to you. And when he dwells in us and he secures that salvation of us, he also, while dwelling in us, convicts us of our sin. He also empowers us to do what is right. He provides for us spiritual gifts. He produces in us spiritual fruit that is consistent with our salvation. He does it all. The Holy Spirit's participation participates in every aspect of our salvation from the beginning to its completion. And we, in turn, participate with the Holy Spirit's work in us. Paul will say it this way in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. He says, we are to work out what God is working in. He works in us, and now we are working it out. The Bible tells us how do we work with it, what it reminds us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, that we are not to quench the Spirit. Do you know what that means? That when the Holy Spirit is leading you and guiding you into truth, that you don't stiff arm the Holy Spirit and, and continue to sin. In fact, in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, don't grieve the Spirit. In other words, be very careful to always be faithful to the move and the push of the Holy Spirit. Because if you keep saying no, there will come a time that you will grieve the Spirit to the point that you don't sense him at all, at all. 
So instead of doing these things, instead of grieving the Spirit, instead of quenching the Spirit, the Bible says instead in Ephesians 5.18 that we're to be filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? That we're to be completely and utterly in participation with the Holy Spirit and what He's ultimately doing in our life. And if you're a born-again believer, you've had the Holy Spirit every aspect of your life from the drawing you to salvation, from sealing your salvation to now working in you, continue to sanctify you and will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. All of us have experienced that. And number four, number four, we've experienced the affection in, in sympathy. Affection means tenderness. Sympathy, sympathy means that somebody comes alongside of you and they, and they can relate in a way to that weakness. They can see it. Jesus was tempted in every way, but yet sinned not. But yet there's still a sympathy that he has for us in our sin. The Bible teaches us in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 29, it says that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart towards us. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1, it tells us that he is full of meekness and gentleness towards us. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, I love this. He does not, the Bible says, he does not break bruised reeds or extinguish smoldering wicks. Do you know what that means? He doesn't write you off when you fail. When you struggle, he doesn't say, I'm done with you. I'm going somewhere else. He is tender with us and he is sympathetic with us. And this is all that we have in Jesus Christ. Now listen, I gotta tell you, if this is it, if this is all that we said this morning, it should be enough for us. What should have happened right now is every one of us should be going back. We should be looking over. We should be reminded of all that God has done for us. And we should be ready to have the invitation right now and respond in light of all that Christ has done for us. But I got a feeling that there are some here with their pen in their paper or their iPad or whatever their electronic device is. And they'll go, we're waiting. We're, we're waiting Brother Mike, you said in the beginning of the service that you had, this was the, the essential, uh, the, the, the greatest teaching on unity in all of the Bible, and it teaches us how to do it. Well, guess what? I have disunity in my home, and I need it to be relieved. I need some instruction. And so a person's sitting there and going, but all you've done to this particular point is told me about Jesus. All you've done is told me about all that he's done. Hey, it's really great, and it's great for a theology class, but it ain't helping when I go home to him. It's not helping when I go home to her. Give me something practical. Somebody's calling out and they're thinking to themselves, Brother Mike, please give us some nifty teaching on conflict resolution. Just three or four different points. I've got conflict and I need resolution. Some people are sitting back and they're thinking to themselves at the same time. They say, listen, at least, at least give me some pointers on argumentation and debate. So, so that way, if I go home, I can persuade my spouse to see my perspective, agree with it. And if I can do that, then we can be unified because everyone's doing what I want them to do. Why can't you? Why, Mike, are you always talking about Jesus and the things of Jesus and what he has done? Why can't you put the pedal to the metal, the rubber to the road, and give us some real practical things? Well, the reason I'd say that I'm not giving that to you is because Paul didn't see to give that to you. Paul instead decided that the place to start with unity was to begin by reflecting on all that you and I have received in the person of Jesus Christ. And we must remain there thinking on, pontificating on, relishing in, in order for there to be any hope for any unity for those around us. I think he's doing this for two reasons. Just stick with me. First of all, he, he reminds us of our need of theology. That's right, I said it. Our need of theology. And there's some people that sit there and go, theology? What are you talking about? 
I don't want theology. Just tell me what to do. Just give me the practical aspect of all this stuff. I don't need to know all the, about soteriology and every aspect of salvation, man. Just tell me what it is that I need to do. May I remind you, Celebration Baptist Church, that we are not first and foremost pragmatic people, but we are instead theological people. What that simply means is that you and I are not people going around just trying to figure out how to do things and try to seek things that work. You and I are trying to figure out what is true. We want truth. Truth reigns over practicality. It reigns over what works. Here, here, here's, here's what happens oftentimes. People will, will, will want, they'll sit there and say, man, just tell me what to do. I want to know what to do. I don't care about the theological side of these things. And it just, just tell me, I, I need to work this out. But have you ever noticed that the Bible gives very little practical teaching oftentimes? It's almost all theological. Basically, this is what the Bible is telling you to do. It's telling you what kind of God we have, what we have done to blow it with him, and what he has done to be able to save you, to be, be, bring you back into reconciliation with him. That is why Paul's writings, the majority of them, even look at the book of Colossians, the first two chapters are all theology. He doesn't even give you any practical application until chapter 3 and chapter 4. And this is consistent with most of the word of God. Why is that? Because the, that's why the Bible teaches us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Here's what it's saying. Know who I am, know what I have done for you, know your need for me, and out of that, work with fear and trembling every single day, depending on me every single day, on how to do what it is that I've called you to ultimately do. So we are first and foremost theological people. We need theology. Here's, here, here's what often people will say. I remember having a conversation with a young man. Don't worry, he doesn't go here anymore. And uh, so uh, he came, he's not even at this church, but a young man came to me one time and he goes, he goes, man, I'm having problems in my marriage. And I said, no, I know, brother. We've been working with this for two years. And I said, let's go back to the beginning. Are you loving your wife as Christ loves the church and gave his life for him? Yes, I did that for two full years. Are you doing it now? No. Why? Because it didn't work. She's still mean. She's still the same woman as two years ago. Do you see what the danger is by being pragmatic? By sitting there and go, just tell me what will ultimately work. Here's the danger of, of pragmatism. Not being theological, but pragmatism. Is that you will get to the point, and if it doesn't work, as you see the direction of the word of God giving you working, and it doesn't seem to bring you to where you ultimately want it to be able to result, you'll sit there and stop doing it altogether. That is not a way to respond to the clear teaching of the word of God, not give it up when you don't think that it's working. Why? The motivation is for you and I, the only appropriate way to respond to all that God has given us is to take the same things he's given us and to be able to give it out and extend it to those around us for the sake of unity. Notice this, whether it works or not, whether it works or not. It reminds us of need of theology, but it also reminds us of our need of worship. I just want to be really clear, and I don't mean to be, sometimes people will sit there and go, well, that was simple when I get done preaching, and you may think that that's a bad thing. I think that's great, because I'm not trying to tell you something that you don't already know. Do, do we understand that? I'm just trying to tell you what the truth of God's word is. If that seems simple, great. doesn't seem very simple to me, but it might see, seem simple to you sometimes. And so when we read the word of God, we need to understand something. And I don't mean to belittle your intelligence, but the Christian life is not about doing all the things to gain the favor of Jesus. You didn't come to church today for him to love you more or for to give favor for you or to get something from him. I hope that's not why you came. 
The reason that we gather together and we learn of him and we seek to live for him is not to gain his favor. It's because his favor has been granted to us. He has given us his unmerited favor and all of his goodness and all of his blessings that we've just read out were given to you despite of yourself. And the only right way to respond to that is to give what has been given so freely to us to give it away. He says, the command of God, freely you have received. Now freely what? Now freely give. So I think this is it. So what do we do? Motivation begins by first of all, making sure that we're seeking unity because of all that we have received. There's a second thing, and then we're going to be done. Isn't that amazing? We're going to be done with two because I know you want to get in the traffic. So here we go. Number two, we are motivated to unity to be a joy to others. We're motivated to be a joy of others. Notice what Paul says in verse two. Complete my joy. Now, the Philippians have already been a, a joy to Paul. He said back in chapter 1 and verse uh, 4, he said this. He goes, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. This is what Paul was saying back in chapter 1 verse 4. Every time I think of you, every time I begin to pray, I'm just so overwhelmed with joy of you by your thoughts, every thought of you, that I can't help but to pray with joy to God. It, it happens to me every stinking time, man. There I am about to pray for you. Whoop, joy. Why was he saying that? He was saying that because every time I think of you, I think of how you were submitting to the will of God and the teaching of God's word, and that's what brings me joy. He says, you've already brought me joy. Now continue to bring me joy. Complete what it is that you've started by now submitting yourself to the word of God and becoming unified one with another. According to Paul, a legitimate, a legitimate motivation for us doing what is right is to the desire to be to be a blessing to those who are around us, especially those who have spiritually poured into our lives. This is what Paul did for them. Paul brought the gospel to them. He discipled them. And now he's saying, because I brought these things to you, your motivation should be to pay me back. Now, note this, to pay me back how? By living and submitting and bring me joy by doing what is right. Now, there's a part of that that seems off, doesn't it? Right? I mean, we always struggle with this. You know, somebody comes up to you and goes, thank you, Pastor, that was a great message, every once in a while. And so somebody comes and says, hey, that was a great message. And then you're kind of uncomfortable. What do I do? What do I do? What do, what do I say there? Do I sit there and go, hey, man, it was, uh, you know, don't thank me, thank God. You know, that seems odd because I don't want to blame God for my message. <laughs> you know, that, that type of thing. And so what, how, how do you say, have you ever had people, you know, come to you and thank you for things and you're like, it's not me, it's him. And, and there's this awkwardness. Look, there is an aspect uh, it almost sounds like what he's, what he's saying here is inconsistent with what we're instructed, what the advice that I give sometimes. You know, sometimes folks come to me and they are so living for the acceptance and the pleasure of other people that they're just worn out. They're living for the, the, the pleasure and for, to please their mom and dad and their aunts and uncles and their teachers and everything else. We have any people pleasers? You just know naturally that's kind of how you vibe. And every once in a while with a people pleaser, the problem is they've taken their eyes off of God. They're not even considering God. All they're now considering in all their life and their decisions is to make the people around them happy. I think it's right advice to go to that person and sit there and go, man, you weren't called by God to please people. You can't please people all the time. I think it's okay to sit there and say, you've been called to please God, but bring joy to those of other people while seeking to please God. Sometimes I've had people use this kind of phrase in, in a defensive way. 
You ever known somebody where you sit there and go, hey, brother, I want to let you know that me and the other pastors or wherever it is, man, you're living a life, man. You're breaking our heart with what you're doing and the decisions that you're making. And that person sometimes will turn to us and go, well, I'm not living for you. I'm living for Jesus. It doesn't matter to me what you think. I don't matter what you think about me and how I live my life. I'm trying to please Jesus, man, not you. So it sounds really ultra-spiritual, but we know there's something really crusty about that, right? Really wrong about that. And so what we find is what Paul is ultimately saying is this. He's ultimately saying our greatest goal is to please God, not man. How do we please God? How do we demonstrate our love for him and all that we've been given? We do it by being a blessing and being a joy of other people, especially those people who have poured in to our lives. This is certainly true. Listen, listen. it's, it's not just said, stated here. It's stated throughout the word of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, listen. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. What the Bible is saying is, hey, those that pour into you, moms, dads, Sunday school teachers, small group teachers, pastors, all those that teach you the word of God, that have led you in the word of God, there is a bona fide motivation on your part to live in such a way that you bring joy to their life by your obedience to Jesus Christ and submitting to them. Then again, he says here, he says it even more clearly in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you see what he says? They're looking after their soul. The spiritual leaders are trying to help you and minister and admonish you. And he says, if you sit back and you fight against that and you become a discouragement to them, that's no good to you. You need to live your life out in a way that will bring joy to those who are pouring into your life. It's a legitimate motivation. I love this in my favorite passage in 3 John 1, 4. Every parent gets this. John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. No greater joy. No greater joy than that. Now, biblically, I think that we've set up that this is a legitimate motivation, right? But we see this in our own practical life. No father and son sit down and, you know, the father has really maybe led their son to Christ and they're seeing him grow and the father just wants to tell him how proud he is of him, right? You, you ever do this and you get there and you go, son, I'm just so proud of you and so grateful for what God has done inside of your life. I, I love you so very much for how you've cared for other people and you've lived for Jesus and the integrity that you have. And then at that point, would it be, would it be, uh, would it be appropriate for that son to sit there and go, I ain't doing any of this for you. I'm not living for you. I'm living for God. Or vice versa, right? For the, for the son to come up and say, hey, dad, you know, I did this. I hope you were happy with what it is that I'm doing. I'm just following your model. And the father goes, hey, man, don't do it for me. Hey, I never asked you to live for me. I told you to live for God, not for me. No, not at all. That conversation of a father and a son sitting there and saying, son, I love you for how you're living your life for God. And the son coming and taking satisfaction in the fact that, that there is joy that he's bringing to his father who's poured into him. Would you not say that that is healthy and natural and real and right? So it is. For every spiritual relationship we have of those that are over us, that are pouring into us. If you're in a place this morning where you are making decisions in your life and you see all those that are around you that love you so desperately and so dearly, if you find them grieved, 
I can all, all, almost, if they're godly people, then I can almost assure you that you're making the wrong decisions. Making the wrong decisions. We're not here to try to please people. That's exhausting. But here's what the Bible says. A motivation for me, first and foremost, is to live out and to take all that God has given me and to be able to naturally begin to bestow on other people what I've been given. The second motivation is simply this, is for me to be a joy in the lives of those who are around me, especially those that have poured the scriptures into my life. That's what drives us. We're not even to the model yet. That's what's driving us, the glory of God and the joy of those who are ultimately around us. And why should we not extend that grace and mercy? We've been given so much. You know, we've got some neighbors, um, they just moved in recently, really love them, really, really great people. And I can talk about them because they don't come here. Um, and so, um, so the very first month they were there, uh, we're probably like a lot of your families in, in that we always seem to be short on laundry detergent, okay? And, uh, and uh, so you just always, we need more laundry detergent, you know? And I'm like, are you guys drinking this? What, what are you doing, you know, with this? And my wife's always like, or you could just do the laundry. I'll, I'll, we'll get more laundry detergent. We're good. And uh, we'll get it. And, and it seems like we're always out. And one day we're out and my wife is like, hey, we need some laundry detergent. Can you, and she's always like, you know, get something cheap. And I'm like, I ain't getting no cheap laundry detergent, right? And so we get in this discussion and all of a sudden our neighbor comes over with this big giant thing of laundry detergent. And we're like, oh, that's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that. Hmm, they can hear. And so they come over and they give us the laundry detergent. We're like, thank you. We're so grateful for that. Well, this last month, the same exact thing happens. Not the fighting and arguing, but we, we've learned to argue inside the house now. And so, um, so what, what we've done is we've kind of gone out, and all of a sudden, uh, she brings over this another big, huge, large jar thing. And we're like, I mean, that stuff's not cheap, right? And we're, we're kind of sitting back going, thank you. This is amazing that you're doing this. And she goes, don't, don't sweat it. She goes, I know some folks, and somehow they get all of this stuff for next to no money at all, and she just gives all of this more than I know for free. So I'm fi- I have to work at trying to find people to be able to give this stuff to. It's no big deal. In the same way, as we are called to extend grace and mercy and love and encouragement and the comfort of love and participation in other people's lives, we should look to see the abounding amount that we have been blessed with God and to be able to bestow it to those who are around us for the sake of unity should seem like no big deal in light of all that we've received. In light of all that we've received. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you, we thank you, and we love you. You're worthy of all praise. And God, we're just now getting into what motivates us to seek unity. So that means that there are some here, whether it be in their marriage or friendships or maybe other people in the church that... There is not unity, and that's always that possibility. But God, what motivates us now to deal with it, because we know it's going to take a great deal of energy, great deal of time, great deal of dying to self, maybe even pain to be able to try to unify with those in broken relationships. God, let us be motivated by the right purposes, and that is, that is merely a natural, appropriate response to all the grace and the mercy that we've seen. To take all to receive, to take all that grace and mercy, bend it outwards to those that we are disunified with. And God, I pray that we will understand that it is right for us, right for us, to not seek to be man pleasers, but seek to please God. And in seeking and bestowing grace, 
grace on other people, that we are bringing joy to those that are around us, and that is a right motivation as well. God, I don't know what's working on. I don't know what's it, but you do. I pray that you will take this word. I pray you will drive it into the heart of each person, and we will respond by faith to what it is that we are hearing. We love you in your name. Amen. Would you stand? Would you stand?